Um, kia ora koutou, no mai hara mai, um, koujo malcolm taku inua. Um, it's my absolute pleasure to um, welcome you to this event and to also um, uh, introduce Anna Fifield, who is actually, um, I can say, is a bit of a journalistic hero of mine. Um, Anna actually did the same course that I did, but about um, a gazillion years later. So Anna did the postgraduate diploma of journalism in 1997 at Canterbury. Um, I still teach into that program now. Um, after that, she basically went to London and worked for the Financial Times and then um, uh, sort of did a career change to the Washington Post and was bureau chief in Tokyo and then Beijing and then uh, travelled around a lot um, writing and has found her way back to New Zealand and we are very, very lucky to have her. There aren't many journalists of Anna's calibre around and I can say that because um, I work in this space and I read a lot. Um, and as I say, we're very lucky to have her here and for her to talk about this book because it's an extraordinary book and for those of you who don't know anything about North Korea, it gives an incredible insight into Kim Jong-un. So, to start the discussion, Anna, I would like to ask you why you picked someone who actually is really hard to find out any information about. Well, um, <laughs> thank you, Joe, for that very generous welcome, and kia ora Christchurch. It's very nice to be back here. Um, you know, I wrote this book and picked the him as my subject out of my own fascination. So I had covered uh, North Korea between 2004 and 2008 when I was the Financial Times correspondent in Seoul. And I was kind of unusually lucky at getting into North Korea uh, a whole bunch of times. I don't know what that says about me, why the North Koreans liked me. Uh, <laughs> but I was lucky to get in a lot and it just kind of whet my appetite because it was so fascinating you know, to try to figure out what was going on in this country. Um, and to, you know, in many ways, going to North Korea is more puzzling than not going because it is such a charade put on for, like a performance put on for you. But so I went a bunch of times in those years when Kim Jong-il was still the leader and the country was so broken and there was so clearly no affection for the leaders whatsoever. And I just did not think that there was any way that this regime could continue to survive. So imagine my surprise when I returned to covering North Korea in 2014 when I took up the Washington Post uh, position and I went, went back to North Korea within a few months of starting the job. Um, I actually went back with some Japanese worldwide wrestlers, like pro wrestlers, <laughs> like the things that you do to get a visa to North Korea. <laughs> that was one of them. Um, so I went back and this was my first trip of Kim Jong-un's era. And so I was completely flabbergasted to see that he had managed to not only survive as the leader, but he almost seemed to be thriving there, that the Potemkin village had had this facelift, it looked better. And I mean, it was just a facelift. Like they had these huge apartment towers um, where, you know, anywhere in the world you would want to live on the top floor and have the great view. In North Korea, the most sought after apartments are fourth floor and down because there's no electricity. So you don't want to have like a 20th floor walk up. Um, so, you know, so, but it, it looked good from the outside. And I was just really, I wanted to figure it out. How had he managed this 27 year old, completely inexperienced, unqualified, uh, uncommunist? 
guy managed to defy all the odds, all the expectations, and keep together this regime that should have collapsed with the Soviet Union. I think that's what I found the most fascinating about the book, actually, is that reading it does give you insight from when he was um, a young child, and you're sort of taken through this journey. So I don't think many people would know that he actually went to school in Switzerland. So he was exposed to this incredibly westernised sort of upbringing at school, mm -hmm. where in actual fact, they did have lessons in like women's rights, human rights, democracy. He learned about the French Revolution and all this kind of historical stuff. And so he had this very western schooling. That's right. So this is something that started with his older brother because they did have such a completely abnormal childhood inside North Korea. Like All of the various royal families were kept separate. So Kim Jong-un never knew his older half-brother, Kim Jong-nam. Um, that's the one who he had killed with a chemical weapon a few years ago, uh, <laughs> as you do. Um, but so he was the first one. He went to Moscow and then Geneva, and that was an effort to get the kids out and to live something of a normal life because when they were at home in North Korea, they were kept in a compound, they didn't go to school, they had tutors, they had no friends, they had nothing like a normal life. So they started shipping the kids off to Switzerland, uh, and Kim Jong-un and his older full brother went to Bern uh, and went to, first of all, a private school that was English-speaking and then to a local German-speaking school. Uh, and so that was an effort to give them something like a normal life. And, and Kim Jong-un did go to school. He did play basketball every day after school and did have some friends, not many, but a few. All of them were immigrants. Um, but he, they deliberately chose Switzerland because of their famous kind of discretion, the fact that, you know, lots of kids are dictators and, you know, money launderers and things could go to Switzerland and live a normal life. Uh, so it was perfect. Um, so, yeah, he was there. But a lot of people thought when he was announced as the future leader of North Korea that he might be different, that he might be more liberal, he might be more of a reformer because he'd had this experience in the outside world and that he would want to turn uh, North Korea into something more like Switzerland maybe. But I think this is, that is absolutely not the case because what he learned in Switzerland was that if it was not for this system which created, you know, made him and his family into these kind of godlike figures, he would be nobody. You know, he would be another normal person who had to actually do his schoolwork to be the best in the class and things like that. So I think he actually went back to North Korea thinking he absolutely had to keep the system intact. I mean, what I found really fascinating too in that insight is when you went to Switzerland, you talked to some of these school friends, you know, they talked about his utter obsession with basketball, which actually lasted his entire life. Like, he was obsessed with the NBA. Um, and in fact, was unbelievably competitive and quite awful when he played basketball. Um, so he kind of had this kind of, these obsessions that sort of carried out throughout his life, didn't he? So he seems like, even at that young age, quite a driven, obsessive young man. Would you agree with that? Yes. Uh, and, and so that, I, I've met his aunt, who, uh, his maternal aunt, who acted as his guardian, or like as his parent, in Switzerland. She'd lived with the family in Pyongyang and then moved to Switzerland to pose as the mother. And she portrayed Kim Jong, she now lives in the United States. She defected about 20 years ago. Um, but she described him as being very obsessive. 
interested. And so as a young child, he was very interested in machines and, uh, you know, planes and ships and things like that. And his mother was so worried that he was too obsessive about this that she tried to channel him into basketball because there's a saying in Korean that if you play basketball, you'll grow taller. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, his father was famously short and wore these platform shoes and things. And Kim Jong-un's about five foot seven, so maybe it worked. He's taller than his father, so... Um, so, but, you know, it was kind of like this weird thing where he, um, you know, he went to this sort of school, but also there was an extraordinary, uh, unusual life in North Korea. You know, like he um, had this extraordinary life of entitlement and pampering. And um, one of the other people that you interviewed in the book was um, the Japanese sushi, sushi chef who actually bizarrely took a job making sushi for the Kims. Mm -hmm. And... Um, talked about the fact that, you know, the rice was produced in a special field and picked one grain at a time. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, like, eaten by women first. And then, so this sort of gave us sort of a, a sort of an insight into this extraordinary world within North Korea. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they wanted for nothing. And so when Kim Jong-un was a teenager in the 90s, that's when North Korea was entering into this devastating famine that killed maybe as many as two or three million people in a population of about 20 million. Um, but I don't think Kim Jong-un probably knew anything about this at all because he would have been cloistered inside his compound or off at school in Switzerland and probably not watching the news. But yeah, they had imported Lego and Colgate toothpaste and everything they could ever want while his compatriots were literally starving to death. So it was kind of like, um, you know, it was this utter privilege. I think I was saying to you um, before we started that um, his father um, was the world's biggest buyer of Hennessy cognac and spent a million dollars a year. A year. Yeah while this country is in famine. Yeah. So there was kind of like this amazing contrast, wasn't there, where they just didn't, they just, it was this enormous privilege, wasn't mm. it? It continues to this day. So we've seen over the past five years or so, as Kim Jong-un has presided over all these missile nuclear tests, there's been this increasing, you know, ratcheting up of um, sanctions against North Korea, which have really hurt the people of North Korea very profoundly because they were the ones who were benefiting most of all from exports, like of textiles, lots of um, seamstresses and things like that, and seafood and these kinds of things. So they have really suffered as a result of the sanctions. Meanwhile, we saw Kim Jong-un show up to his uh, summit in Singapore with Donald Trump and a brand new Mercedes Maybach that had only been like 20 made in the world at that time. So clearly Kim Jong-un can get everything he wants while the people of North Korea continue to suffer. So one of the other really fascinating things I found about your book is just the insight into why starving, impoverished North Koreans would accept a leader like this. And um, moving on to the sort of the grooming of him as a leader, you know, there was this whole sort of propaganda campaign about, you know, him achieving like godlike status. Yeah. And from the book, you know, um, I'll just read one bit, which is one officially sanctioned biography called The Childhood of Beloved and Respected Leader. Kim Jong-un claims that he had perfect pitch, that he could ride the wildest horses at age six, that when he was nine, he'd twice beaten a visiting European powerboat racing champion. He'd driven at speeds of 125 miles an hour. And, you know, like, a lot of this stuff was so... He'd fired a gun at seven, he'd driven it. So, but the North Koreans obviously bought into this, in a way, or did they? 
Many, many North Koreans know now that this is all lies. Um, and I remember speaking to, like, men who had been in the North Korean army and defected and saying, you know, they had shotguns, so they knew how difficult it was, and they knew that a three-year-old child could not shoot a rifle, for example. Um, so they do, like, increasingly, they do know that the whole system is based on lies. Um, now, I've probably interviewed about 100 defectors from North Korea over the years, and every single one of them had watched uh, a South Korean drama or movie. You know, there's a lot of smuggling that goes on over the border now. So they have seen that what the outside world looks like and they know that what they are being told is, is not true. Uh, and they also, I think, there's a lot of disillusionment with Kim Jong-un and the fact that he's young and that this system is going to remain for a long time. But I asked uh, defectors, like, why is it? Why is there no uprising against him or no criticism of him? Uh, you know, there's not even any graffiti in North Korea. There's nothing. Uh, and they say it's because the system is so repressive and so brutal that if you disagree with it, you, you try to escape from it. You don't try to change it from the inside. Because to this very day, Kim Jong-un practices this um, system called guilt by association. So that if you do something politically wrong, like, for example, questioning why North Korea is spending all that money on nuclear weapons when they can't feed themselves, that is considered a political crime. And it's not just you that will be thrown into a gulag for that. It is three generations of your family. So it's your parents, your spouse, your children. And so while you may be willing to pay that price, are you willing to put your children to work in a mine for the rest of their lives? And not surprisingly, the answer is almost always no. Um, and so that is how it's managed to survive, I think, because of that fear. Um, one of the things that I found also interesting in terms of a snapshot of life was um, the idea of, you know, these neighbourhoods, which mm. are pretty much ruled by these, as you say, interfering middle-aged women. Mm. I can't remember actually the name for them. Um, who basically rule over these neighbourhoods um, and register any overnight visitors. So mm -hmm. if anyone has an overnight visitor that is registered, anyone who's had any kind of affair that would be known about. Mm. So there's kind of like this incredible invasion of people's lives. They can walk into anyone's house at any time. You know, they're, they're, every conversation, every aspect of life is monitored, their radios. So I guess when you think about that, you can mm -hmm. understand why that regime is able to exist because... North Koreans feel like everything will be known. Yeah, that's right. So the um, saying about these neighbourhood committee women, so the, yeah, there's surveillance at every level of society, but yeah, cities, towns are broken down into 40 household units. And the saying is that it's that woman's job to know how many spoons and how many pairs of chopsticks are in your drawer. Like they're supposed to know to that level what you're doing. And so, and her job really is also to encourage people to rat on each other within that system so that she, she won't get in trouble for somebody doing something wrong. So... There is a real system of, yes, trying to enforce it in this way. But with many things now, like North Korea under Kim Jong-un has become a very corrupt place. So there are a lot of things that you can get away with if you can bribe your way out of it. So, but not political things. So if you want to be able to sell something in the market or make money for yourselves or get a travel permit so you can go and see your girlfriend in the next town or something, then you can bribe your way through that. But it's the political things. It's if you are started, found with... Um, something that would be considered criticism of Kim Jong-un or the regime or something, that's where it becomes much, much more difficult. 
Because I think when, um, I think you write about the fact that he realised early on that he had to keep a section of the population reasonably happy, which is where that whole idea of the elite come in, um, and that it is all about the money, isn't mm -hmm. it? Like it's, um, you know, it's about basically being able to know people who know people who have political capital or something. Having said that, though, um, it didn't help being related to him, did it, really? Because Uncle Jang and... Yeah. Um, his half-brother. Tell us about that. Yeah, so the way Kim Jong-un has done it and has kept the regime together is to keep the people at the top, the people who are loyal to him and keep the regime intact, to keep them equally happy and afraid. So the happy part is he has allowed this kind of kleptocracy to develop and so there are a lot of very corrupt officials making huge amounts of money at the top in North Korea now. So they have an investment in the regime continuing, but he's also really struck fear into their hearts in the way that he's shown that if you cross him or if you do anything to rival his power, that it could be the firing squad for you. And so with Uncle Jang, Jang Song-tek, who was a very important person in North Korea, he was Kim Jong-un's uncle, he was in charge of economic relations with China, he was always back and forth into China, very mercurial character, who apparently very good at karaoke, and like, very personable person. He, you know, Kim Jong-un was terrified that he was developing his own faction because he was charismatic and he knew where the money was, literally, and things. So Kim Jong-un got rid of him, had, had him um, a humiliated, hauled out from a Politburo meeting and executed in public in front of all the officials. So that is a way both to get rid of a potential rival, but also to make a lesson of him to show, you know, if you get too powerful, this is what could happen to you. Uh, and nobody is safe, not even my family members. So, you know, it worked uh, to a large extent. And then there was the general who got... Um killed by a missile attack because he fell asleep during one of... Anti-aircraft fire. Anti-aircraft Yeah, so he, and that was a public thing as well, uh, that he was uh, accused of being insufficiently uh, loyal or I don't, respectful to Kim Jong-un and he was blown to pieces with an anti-aircraft gun, so... <laughs> you know, what can you say? <laughs> I mean, very powerful deterrent. Uh, I'm sure nobody else ever fell asleep in a meeting again when Kim Jong-un was talking. <laughs> Um, if we're going to talk about assassinating people, um, that kind of leads on to the half-brother, basically, yeah. who's a very interesting case because I didn't realise that, you know, it hadn't come out that he actually was a CIA agent. Was he? He wasn't an agent, no. I think he was an informer. Right. So, what he, so he had been living outside of North Korea since about 2002, and there's a theory that it was Kim Jong-un's mother, who very ambitious woman, who wanted to position her children as the successors and get rid of the oldest half-brother. So, because by rights in North Korea, in this Confucian hierarchy, it should have been Kim Jong-nam, the oldest son, who succeeded Kim Jong-il. Um, but he went to... Disneyland in Tokyo with his children uh, in about 2001 and was uh, busted by the Japanese police, very embarrassing, and forced into exile around that time. So he had been living in China and Macau, uh, doing all sorts of business, lots of gambling, lots of dodgy stuff, also like sending things back to North Korea. And he seemed, he wasn't quite outside the system, but he also wasn't quite inside it. But over the years, he had criticised the idea of a hereditary communist system, very obliquely, really, but that was 
too much for Kim Jong-un's liking. But also Kim Jong-un claims his legitimacy as the leader of North Korea through this mythical, totally made up bloodline called the Pekdu bloodline. And Pekdu is the big mountain on the border between China and North Korea. That's where he rides the white horses on that mountain. Um, and so he said, you know, I am a descendant of this holy mountain and therefore I am uniquely qualified to run North Korea. But Kim Jong-nam could technically have staked that claim as well. Uh, because he also technically had the blood. He showed no interest whatsoever in doing so. He was, you know, living outside, seldom went back, didn't want to do it. But for Kim Jong-un, he was still a potential rival. So he not only had him killed, assassinated, but with a very, very painful fast death in a, you know, smeared with VX in Kuala Lumpur Airport. Um, again, uh, Kim Jong-un was sending a message saying, anywhere, anytime, I can get you, because there are now quite a few defectors on the outside criticising him. So this was supposed to, again, getting rid of a rival, sending a message at the same time. You know, and Kim Jong-un really paid no price whatsoever for that. There were, you know, some rumblings around the time, but nothing's ever been done to hold him accountable for that. So it's quite extraordinary that that happened in, you know, a foreign country and someone was assassinated and there is no price. I read somewhere that the two women who did it thought they were taking part in some reality series when they did it. Is that true? Yeah, so the North Koreans had recruited them. They were um, a, a Vietnamese and a, um, Indonesian woman who were living there in Malaysia and they yeah, were paid $100 each to apparently participate in a reality show. I, I think they were tricked, but I also know they made an absolute... It's called VX2. You need the two parts of it to interact to cause the chemical uh, effect. And so, but they both rushed to the bathrooms immediately and washed their hands. So they must have known that something was up. But, yeah, it was... Yeah, they were set up to it. So there's this kind of like this, 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 this ruthlessness about them, isn't it? Like utter ruthlessness. But then he also did realise that he had to make some kind of change mm -hmm. in terms of allowing people to, you know, have some sort of semblance of um, a normal life in North Korea because he allowed the development of the sort of quite capitalist markets, didn't he? So tell, tell us about that. Yeah, so Kim Jong-un cares about one thing and one thing only, and that is himself and staying in power. So everything he does is with that single goal in mind. So he did, after he came in, he promised that North Koreans would never have to tighten their belts again. And he's tried to, because he knows that the people know that it's, you know, that, that they are much poorer and more um, cloistered, you know, repressed than China or South Korea. He knows he has to show some kind of improvement. So he's allowed a market economy to take hold. There is a lot of trading. Every town and city in North Korea now has a big marketplace where you can buy, you know, food, uh, normal daily uh, necessities like tofu and, you know, rice and things like that. But also you can buy a Dyson vacuum cleaner in North Korea. Uh, you can buy French perfume. You know, you have to be one of the kleptocrats to be able to do it. But there is everything that has been able to get into North Korea. And he has done that not because he cares about the people and wants to help them live a better life so much, but because he wants to be able to take the credit for this improvement in their standard of living and say, look, your life has gotten better under me. Aren't you lucky that you have me as your leader? And so, so that's his motivating force. Because actually, you know, there is that sense that there were, um, you know, USB sticks with South Korean movies on them. Mm -hmm. 
and DVD players. So obviously North Koreans are getting a little bit of a snapshot of life outside. Yes, yeah, they are. Um, they do. They are able to. So DVD players are not illegal. They are allowed to import them. Um, but it's the, the drives and the SD cards and things which have the media are um, are technically, you know, illegal. It depends on what it is. If it's a Chinese action movie with no political content, you know, you'll be okay. But if it's something that's deemed to be more subversive, then you could be in trouble for that. But yes, this is very widespread now. So one thing um, in the book that, that surprised me, mm. um, but also that whole idea of um, you talk about um, Pyonghattan, like yeah. Manhattan, like, a, like, a, like an area of, you know, this little place that's been built for the elite where you can actually buy, like, steaks that cost $45, which mm. would be unheard of mm. in terms of the average North Korean. Um, and this elite, you know, you talk about the uh, masters of money who mm. sort of have got these rich millennials who sort of... So there's that side of it as well, isn't it? That they have this little sort of bubble, like a Manhattan. Yeah, yeah that's right. And that is all designed to keep these people, and they're usually people who've travelled or had some exposure to the outside world in some way. So they have seen what it's like, even over the border in China, in a third-tier Chinese city. So they have an idea of that. Uh, they also know that if they were to defect, they would not be elite if they were in South Korea. So Kim Jong-un has tried to create this sense of elite uh, for them inside Pyongyang. So these people, yes, they live in relatively nice apartments and can do a lot like the North Korea is a very socially conservative society. So one of the big things that people in Pyonghattan like to do is to go to the gym uh, so that they have an excuse to wear kind of tight clothing and things. And so this is what the millennials of, of North Korea do now. And they, yeah, you can buy a cappuccino and people, people buy them because they want to look worldly. And they ask, well, before COVID, they would ask people who were going to China to bring back clothes from H&M and Uniqlo and things. So they do have the sense of the outside world, but this is this very rarefied group of people. This is not the ordinary, you know, the ordinary North Korean living out in the countryside would not even have uh, electricity. They would have a wooden fire and an outside toilet and things. So that's one of the big changes over the years, actually, that where before all North Koreans were kind of equally poor, and now there is real social and economic disparity inside North Korea. So you've been there 14 times. Did you ever feel, you were obviously those trips, as you mentioned, were like really choreographed. Mm. Would any North Korean ever say anything to you that wasn't off script? Never, never. Ever. Um, and in that first trip in 2005, back then North Korea, um, foreigners weren't allowed North Korean currency. You could only, you know, buy it, go to certain restaurants and use dollars or euros. Um, but. I had some North Korean currency that someone had given me. So I, I went, you know, you're monitored all the time. You have two minders with you because uh, you need a minder to keep an eye on the other minder as well as <laughs> them both to keep an eye on you. Um, and so, uh, but I said to my minder, you know, can I go for a walk around the block? And he was this very kind of suave diplomat just returned from a posting in Berlin and was, you know, trying to, you know, was talking about driving... 160 on the autobahn and things. So he was trying to, you know, show how, yeah, and show how cosmopolitan he was. And he's like, it's fine, just walk around the block, don't go too far. So I did, uh, and there was this kiosk on the street that had in the window a North Korean English dictionary. And North Korean is a little bit different from South Korean. And so I went up and in my terrible Korean asked, how much is that dictionary? And the woman behind, and got out my money, and the woman behind the counter just 
freaked out. Uh, yeah, like a foreign person coming up and speaking Korean and having North Korean money. And this big crowd formed around me and it caused a big stir. Um, and people were asking me for my passport and things. And I just, I walked back to the hotel, like not quickly. I just wanted to show them I wasn't doing anything wrong. And I just went back, you know, within like 10 seconds of walking in the door, my minder had called me like, what have you done? But so, but my lesson from that was that by trying to talk to an ordinary person, I did nothing but put that person in danger because that woman would have probably been called in by the secret police. She would have been forced to go to a self-criticism session or something like that. Uh, you know, so, yeah, I never, ever did anything like that again because, I, you know, I wasn't even asking her, you know, what do you really think about the system? It was a very, you know, how much is that? So, so no. So, the, ironically, all of the best information I found out about life inside North Korea, I found out just over the border in China or in Laos or Thailand along the, the route out where people defect and where you're able to talk to people who, you know, were in North Korea last week. Um, also, there were you did extensive interviews, you know, outside around the world. I think um, the guy who made sushi mm. for the Kims had a business card saying, "If you want to talk about North Korea, call me." Yeah. So he was obviously quite open yeah. to the idea of actually talking and being open. He sort of made a whole thing of it. Yeah. Well, if you're a Japanese, like if you're living in Japan in the 1980s when everybody's in a Lamborghini, but your life is so bad that you go to North Korea to make sushi, <laughs> you know, you're, he had a screw loose, put it that way. So, so, so that was his whole shtick, right? Like he was a Kim Jong-un-ologist. Uh, he was trading off that. He wrote four books about it, um, and then he went back to North Korea. So he lives in North Korea right now, running a little eight-seat sushi bar in Pyongyang. Apparently it's not bad, <laughs> you know, but who can, yeah, who can go there? So apart from the episode where, you know, you tried to um, buy the dictionary, mm. did you ever feel unsafe or worried that you might get locked up? Because you could have just disappeared off the streets. Yeah, yeah, I could have. Um, and I think after the incident with Otto Warmbier, things changed. That was the student who died in North Korea uh, or came out of North Korea in a coma. Um, I think I didn't feel unsafe in North Korea. I was always trying to behave myself and not push things too far, knowing that that was, you know, the risk and that if you were detained in North Korea, there's no way for anybody to get you out. Uh, and, in fact, when I, I saw the... Um, British ambassador at one time, and I was like, remember to come and get me if I get locked up. And he's like, no, no, the Swedes take care of you. And I was like, no, you do, because the Swedes <laughs> take care of the Australians. And so he was like, oh. <laughs> you know, but even he didn't know, so I'm like, I'm really on my own here. Yeah. Um, but no, so I was always quite careful, but there were things like, I remember I've been into the North Korean, um, the Pyongyang Maternity Hospital a bunch of times, including the first time I ever went to North Korea, I was taken on this tour. And the doctor there said to me, you know, when it's time for you to have a baby, feel free to come back. And I was like, oh. Uh, but, so then, <laughs> but, but when I went back in 2016, the same guy was there as the director of the, um, of the maternity hospital. And I told him I had since had a child, but outside. Um, and was just talking, like reminding him that I'd met him before. And so he was very wary of me thinking, who is this who's come back yeah. and remembers me? Because I'd been through my photos again before I went back in. Um, but in this hospital, they took me around and showed me all these things that I'd seen 10 years before. And they were like, this is state of the art. And I'm like, you had this last time I was here. <laughs> and so they really did not like that. And they were moving me on and getting me out. So that was, you know, it's hard not to push the boundaries. So 
Yeah. So there's two aspects to that as well, because clearly they're okay with people coming in. Like, they, they clearly want to be able to show the outside world certain things, which um, leads me on to a few things in the book which just fall into the utterly bizarre, bizarre sort of um, box, which is um, Dennis Rodman. I don't know whether many people know who Dennis Rodman is, but he's a very... Um, larger-than-life um, NBA player who played with Michael Jordan in the Chicago Bulls. Um, he had sort of pink-white hair, you know, earrings. He was very out there. Yeah. And Kim Jong-un, because he was obsessed with basketball, wanted Michael Jordan, but Michael Jordan was afraid to fly. So this whole thing came and he visited. Mm. And the whole sort of... That whole thing was extraordinarily bizarre. Yeah. The afraid to fly was an excuse. Michael Jordan <laughs> knew nothing good could go could come of being Kim Jong-un's best friend. Mm -hmm. But Dennis Rodman was, yeah, very eccentric character anyway, but also kind of down on his luck. So he was, like, opening a dentist convention in Las Vegas when he got the call, <laughs> like, would you like to be the envoy to North Korea? And, yes, he said yes. So... Off he went. So the Chicago Bulls were really huge at that time when Kim Jong-un was in Switzerland and he actually travelled to Paris and saw some NBA games and things. So this, it all started to come together. And also the two of them really loved Jean-Claude Van Damme movies and there was a movie, him and his brother I mean, and there was a movie that came out when he was in Switzerland that starred Jean-Claude Van Damme and Dennis Rodman. So everything started coming together um, and Dennis Rodman went off on these really bizarre, trips to North Korea and tried to act as a bridge for between the US and North Korea. Uh, and it seemed really kind of nonsensical and sane at the time, but the CIA had actually um, suggested this as an idea to send a Chicago bull to North Korea because they knew that that would be in. So Kind of as a spy. Yeah, or just to, as a bridge, maybe. Just to, they knew nothing about this man. So they, when he became, was announced as the leader, the South Koreans didn't even know how to spell his name. Like, there are two ways in Korean you could spell his name. They didn't even know how to spell his name. And the Swiss, the famously discreet Swiss, they knew who he was. They knew he was the child of Kim Jong-un because they would watch the mother come back and forth on a North Korean VIP jet. But they, the Attorney General at the time said don't surveil the kids, don't keep tabs on the kids, kids should be kids. So they knew nothing about Kim Jong-un. So the idea of sending someone in to find out something about him, uh, yeah, was not just crazy Dennis Rodman who thought of this. And in fact, the whole reason that we know that Kim Jong-un has a daughter called Ju Ae, who is now about six years old, is because Dennis Rodman held her and came out and told us about her. So, so that's the thing, isn't it? And he also got away with extraordinary stuff. Um, there's an amazing quote, which, um, excuse my swearing, but at one gala reception, Dennis Rodman said to Kim Jong-un, Marshall, your father and grandfather did some fucked up shit, but, but you're trying to change that, and we love you for that. And apparently there was just like this utter deathly silence. Yeah. And as you pointed out, the translators maybe didn't translate exactly yeah. what he said, yeah. but then Kim Jong-un raised his glass yeah. to yeah. him. And I think, well, how risky is that for Dennis Rodman? Like... He yeah. truly was probably a bit mad. I'd yeah, say. but also very drunk. They yeah. went on these. They went on these benders in Pyongyang. These are very elaborate feasts. I talked to like five people who went into that room with them. Kim Jong Un was singing karaoke. James Brown, uh, in this situation, he was so, singing James. Brown. He was singing James Brown. <laughs> Get on up. 
You sex so, machine. Yeah. So, very, the, well, this is according... I mean, I didn't talk to Dennis Rodman for the book. His agent... Is he, is he still alive? He is still alive, yeah. But his agent was quite willing, but it never actually came together. But I don't feel like I lost anything by not talking to <laughs> Dennis Rodman. But I did speak to five people who were there with him, including Korean speakers and who were on the yacht and things like that. And so they told me about these drunken scenes. And there was one of them who was a vice news reporter from uh, New York who uh, Dennis Rodman actually sent a note over to him to tell him to tone it down. So he said he <laughs> knew things were getting out of hand. But apparently Kim Jong-un loved it because Kim Jong-un doesn't get to do this ever because people are so afraid or like always bowing to him. So even that line, even if Kim Jong-un understood some of it, he probably, you know, maybe found it refreshing. I don't know. Well, who would know? Exactly. Who would know? But it was, uh, you know, sort of segueing onto the bazaar as well is yeah. his then interactions with Donald Trump, yeah. which actually, you know, I'd be interested in your take on this because that whole summit in Singapore, mm -hmm. um, you write about the fact that, that he realised that actually this was a way of shoring his own power up because yeah. if he was seen to be interacting with world leaders, mm -hmm. particularly America and China, back home that would play very well. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, this is what I mean about things all kind of linking up. But for a long time, like two years almost, the, the link between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump was Dennis Rodman because Dennis Rodman had been on Celebrity Apprentice with <laughs> Donald Trump. So, you know, how bizarre that all of this... Because, so the idea of Dennis Rodman going to North Korea suddenly didn't seem like... So what weird. world are we living in when this doesn't seem, like, so bizarre? Um, but, yes, for Kim Jong-un, I think, like, for the North Koreans, all of them, Kim Jong-un's grandfather, father, him have wanted to meet the President of the United States because the United States is their arch enemy, the whole reason for North Korea's existence, you know, after World War II when the peninsula was divided in half, uh, the South went to, you know, kind of US ally and the North was a Soviet ally. So North Korea exists in opposition to... Uh, to the United States. So the only way for them to normalise or to be able to live like a normal country would be to normalise those relations uh, with the US. So generations of leaders have wanted to meet with the president, but Kim Jong-un was the one who actually did. And this was something that he was enormously proud of and something he crowed about to the people of North Korea. Um, because it enabled him to say, first of all, that he had done something that his two forebears had not managed to do, but also to plaster North Korean newspapers and TV screens with these pictures of the technically most powerful person in the world standing shoulder to shoulder with him. And so that was a huge boost for his legitimacy inside North Korea. He was able to say, you know, look how powerful, look how revered I am. I am an international statesman um, like Xi Jinping in China, Moon Jae-in in South Korea, Putin, Trump, all these people he met with. So, yes, this was a huge propaganda victory for him. And in a weird kind of way, Trump actually fell into playing the part perfectly because he wasn't challenging. And, in fact, he called him a smart guy. Yeah. A really smart guy. So, you yeah. know, it's like... Everything he didn't have to, Kim Jong Un didn't have to do anything. Nothing Actually, at all. Trump did all the schmoozing. Yeah, didn't he? that's right. And so this is like the point of the book because I think so often people look at Kim Jong Un as a kind of cartoon character, Bond villain type guy. And I mean, he does lend himself to caricature <laughs> with his funny haircut and things he does, you know. Um, but I wanted to show that he has actually been very rational and strategic and done all the things that are required of you if you're a totalitarian dictator trying to stay in power. 
And so this was one of them, like the way he dealt with Trump. Um, he played him like a fiddle. You know, he got him to come out to Asia several times, said all these nice things, you know, used very honorific, flowery language in the letters. You know, maybe you remember he sent him a, a letter in one of those comedy-sized envelopes that, you know, Donald <laughs> Trump loved it. Uh, and he, he posed for it. He showed visitors to the Oval Office for months after this thing. So Kim Jong-un managed to get Donald Trump out to see him without giving up anything, without giving up any missile capability, any nuclear material, nothing except flattery uh, to him and to continue this process for quite some time. It didn't really work in the long run. You know, he didn't manage to strike a deal. Um, but also the US didn't manage to stop him. You know, he's probably still making nuclear material to this day. So that's actually, um, you know, this is a this also sort of lends a real sort of sombre note to the mm. book because um, he talks about the treasured sword, which mm. is nuclear capability, and that's been a really, really big part of his rule, hasn't it? And it's quite frightening, isn't yeah. it? Not quite frightening, very frightening. Yeah, again, because for, that's all for legitimacy because he knows that people know that North Korea is not the strong and prosperous country that he says they are. People know that North Korea is backwards at so many things, but the fact that they have this nuclear program is a source of like, genuine pride for many North Korean people because they know that, yeah, that they are backwards at many things, but the fact that they now have a credible nuclear weapon, probably hydrogen-level bomb, uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles that have been proven to work. Uh, they haven't put the two together, but there's no reason to think that they wouldn't be able to since they've done all these other hard things. So again, this is a double whammy for Kim Jong-un where he's able to capture the world's attention and get the limelight back on him and also staving off the outside world at the same time. I think he was genuinely worried about what Donald Trump might have done for a while there in 2017. So it's this external, it's usefully, useful externally, but also domestically it helps engender, kind of, a, you know, become a source of national pride for people inside the country. And they're especially proud, not only that they have these weapons, but they have managed to make these weapons when North Korea and Japan, oh, sorry, South Korea and Japan have not. Because they got, um, I can't remember the name of the guy who came and showed them how to do it, the scientist. Was he Russian or? Mm. Yeah, I mean, they got world experts to come in and help them learn how to do it. Yeah, well, a lot of them went to Russia, old Russian plants, but A.Q. Khan, the Pakistani nuclear That's scientist, right, yeah. yeah, helped them a lot in the early days as well. So, But, you know, those sanctions have been in place for a really long time designed to stop them from getting parts, stop them from earning money to buy parts, but they, he managed to do it. So you spent a long time in Beijing. What is the Chinese view of Kim Jong-un? Yeah, so there is no love lost between them at all, especially Xi Jinping, who came to power just after uh, Kim Jong-un came in in North Korea. You know, Kim Jong-un is half the Chinese leader's age. Um, but also in the past, you know, China had been North Korea's benefactor. North Korean leaders had gone to Beijing to pay homage to their, you know, patron next door and be very respectful to them. Kim Jong-un went out of his way to embarrass Xi Jinping, you know, firing missiles during big events in China, like when China was hosting the G20 and they held this big Belt and Road Summit uh, and Kim Jong-un was setting off his fireworks next door. So not only was he not going to pay his respects, but he was also actively working against him. But, you know, China, you know, 
China, you know, its number one concern is stability in North Korea. It doesn't want North Korea to collapse and to create a problem on this border for it and potentially to pave the way for America, like the reunification of the Koreas and American troops to be able to come up to the Chinese border. So more than anything, they just want North Korea to be stable. So there's even those... Kim Jong-un has really pushed the line. He knows that China is never going to do anything that could potentially lead to collapse. Has he ever been interviewed by a Western journalist? Never. Not by, Did any, you try? Not by any journalist. Did you try? Did you of even... course I tried. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I asked several times. So my main conduit was the um, North Korean diplomats at the UN in New York because I was working for an American organisation. So I would ask them every single time and they were like, Ugh, Miss Anna, you can dream like that. <laughs> yeah, so I wrote letters and things. You know, of course, they never went anywhere, but I always had to ask. But, you know, so it's often a, you know, kind of discussion amongst journalists who cover North Korea about who is going to get the first interview. And we you always... might have to play basketball, I think. <laughs> no, we always thought it would be Japanese TV because they would pay a lot of money for it. Um, and so, yeah, I never really stood a chance. But, yeah. So since you've written this book, Anna, do you feel, um, like, would they be inter- would North Koreans be interested in your book? Like, would you... Do you feel like you would be being watched or monitored because of it? Or what are the implications of having written this? Um, I sure wouldn't go back to North Korea now. No. Uh, (laughs) No. um, I did go several times while I was reporting the book. And I always assumed the North Koreans are reading my email and things like that. So I assumed that they knew I was writing it. Uh, But then as it got closer to publication, I, I was still applying to go into North Korea, but I kept getting rejected. So... Um, I guess, yeah, they didn't want me back. Um, (laughs) But now, yeah, no, now I wouldn't go. But even in Beijing, you know, I was very close by. In fact, I used to bike by the North Korean embassy all the time to see what pictures they'd put up. It was near my office. Um, But I I didn't feel unsafe. I don't think that they would bother with me. I mean, actually, just even talking about Beijing, you were being often watched in China. Yeah. You? Like, that story about the men in your apartment. Yeah. Well, we assume, you know, people are coming in all the time and checking you and they're monitoring us nonstop. So, yeah, maybe maybe I was safer being in China, weirdly, um, where the, I was being monitored by multiple security <laughs> agencies. But, um, <laughs> but actually, you know, I remember one night, I, this is really tragic, but I'll admit it, I, I dr- had a dream that uh, I was offered an interview with Kim Jong-un <laughs> And I was, um, you know, I was, it was a nightmare, I guess, because I was thinking, like, it's a trap. They're going to kidnap me. But also, like, world first interview with Kim Jong-un. I've got to give it a go. And so I was having this, like, bargain with, like, an argument with myself. And then I woke up. <laughs> um, all of the um, people you interviewed for the book, I mean, the ones outside North Korea, they were quite happy to talk to you. Or was there still a sense of fear that something could happen? Or were they feeling quite relaxed now that they'd got out? It depends on who it is. So if they were a farmer from the northern part of North Korea who was happily living in South Korea, yeah, they would talk. You know, I'd always just ask them about their lives. I wasn't asking them about the nuclear program or anything like that. And so, yeah, a lot of them were happy to talk. Um, The people who were more senior... Uh, like I talked to some of these um, oligarchs of North Korea and the aunt and uncle who had been posing as his parents and things like that, they were much more um, 
wary about things and I, I they would always tell me what they wanted me to hear and like so the the aunt and uncle said they defected because they um they escaped because they wanted to try and get medical treatment for Kim Jong-un's mother who had breast cancer um I don't think that's true at all I think they knew that the mother had breast cancer she it was terminal their link to the regime was about to literally die and the children were getting older and wouldn't need babysitters anymore. So I think they took their opportunity to flee uh, for their three children as well. And they have been living in the United States, running a dry cleaning uh, place ever since, uh, completely anonymous, yeah. So finally, just before we um, take questions, I'm sure people have got some questions mm. um, to ask you. It's so interesting. Um, he's not that well, even though he's a young man. Mm -hmm. What, what do you think is going to happen in the next wee while? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the most puzzling things about him, that he's done all of these things to hold on to power from, you know, killing people and coddling people and all. He's done a lot, like nuclear weapons, the whole lot, but he's not doing the one thing that could ensure his longevity, right, which is looking after himself. He's um, morbidly obese. Uh, he, you know, we've seen him when he's been walking with uh, leaders during these summits, like having trouble breathing and things like that. So he's only 37 years old now. Um, so he, yeah, you don't need to be a doctor to see that he's not in great shape. So I, I really do think uh, that the biggest threat to his leadership is probably his health and the, you know, the fact that he might have a stroke or something like that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he's got a six-year-old son, is that right? Uh, she's a daughter. The Sorry, daughter. one is a daughter. We think he's got two or maybe three children, but they're all very young, so certainly not in any position to take over if he were to drop dead. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, thank you, Anna. That was yeah. um, amazing. I couldn't put the book down. I just found it so interesting, mm. the insights. Mm. Um, be great to have some questions yeah. now for the next sort of um, five or ten minutes. Oh, there's a cam, um, microphone coming. Thank you. You lived in Seoul. Mm. So do you think, um, what about South Koreans? Are they interested in a reunion between North Korea and South Korea? Because the North Koreans say they are. Yeah. Yeah, good question. It's a very generational issue in South Korea. And so older Koreans, like people in their 60s or so, who remember the Korean War or, you know, remember growing up with the tales of the Korean War, they are much more likely to want uh, unification, reunification of the two Koreas. And there's a lot of families that were split during that war. And, you know, people, you know, brothers and sisters, wives and husbands have never been able to see each other again. So those people, yes, very much want that unification. But younger North Koreans and even like middle-aged North Korea, uh, sorry, South Koreans, people who have, you know, been working to, uh, you know, create the economic powerhouse that South Korea is today and young North Koreans, uh, young ugh, South Koreans in particular, look at North Koreans like country bumpkins, people who, you know, don't know how to order a latte to be delivered from their smartphone and things like this. And so they look at them as not, not br their brothers or anything. They look at them as country bumpkins and see nothing but cost. You know, that if they were to reunify, it would be hugely, like, catastrophic on the South Korean economy. So uh, a lot of this policy from the South, which is called the sunshine policy of trying to build links between the two of them, is really about trying to build up North Korea a bit and to lessen the gap between the two of them, maybe to stop a collapse, but to m minimize the disruption if, if a sudden reunification were to happen. 
any more? Yeah, over here. Um, I, in the book, and mm. I think even North Korea, um, it, there's a big thing made about how different they look as well, isn't it? Like the North Koreans are told the South Koreans are very, very different people. Yeah, aren't they? Yeah, I mean they're told they're told that they've got horns growing out of their heads sometimes, but but they <laughs> North Koreans are noticeably shorter than South Koreans because they've been like many of them were stunted during the famine in the 90s, so at like seven or eight centimeters difference generally. Oh, it's wow. a big difference. Yeah. Uh, Anna, we know that Mao Zedong, uh, well, seemingly willingly uh, starved millions of his own people to export food to the Russians to buy armaments. Mm -hmm. Is there an element of this in the uh, famines within the Kim regime? And if that's not true, mm -hmm. what's causing the famines? Is it a desertification of North Korea in the same way that northern China is desertifying? Yeah, um, so the Korean Peninsula, traditionally the north was the industrial part. That's where all the mines were and the chemical and fertilizer factories and the heavy industry was up there. And then the south was, they call it the rice bowl of the peninsula. So that's where all the arable land is and things. So when the peninsula was cut in half, North Korea was dealt a very bad hand anyway. It's that hard for them to grow food. Um, but they have years over years and years of deforestation um, and over harvest over tilling the soil I guess or you you know the soil is very depleted uh, there so it's harder for them to grow crops but because of the they've cut down all the trees to burn for fuel uh, when there are big floods and weather events like that there's nothing to stop it so just last year there were big summer floods again that have wiped out a lot of crops uh, and has led to uh, warnings of impossible another famine happening in North Korea. So it's different from China. They don't have anything to export. They need to import a lot of food. Um, but, yeah, Kim Jong-un is not prioritising that for sure. Yeah. Is it on? Thank you for your talk. But Thank I you. would like to know, you talked about um, his children. Mm. You've not mentioned wife or wives. Yeah. Does he have one? And if so, how does that balance in, in his society. Yep, uh, he does have a wife. Her name is Ri Solju, and she is she was a famous singer in North Korea. She was in like one of these bands, the propaganda bands. And she has been very prominent in a way. So there's never been like a public first lady in North Korea until her. And she is like, very fashionable, wearing these kind of like Christian Dior knockoff suits and being very risque by North Korean standards and like looping her arm through Kim Jong-un's. And so they go about together to various events and concerts and of nuclear launches, whatever you. Um, <laughs> but she is there to like kind of, she's the Kate Middleton of North Korea. She is there to kind of modernize the regime and to show this is a new generation doing things differently, kind of to be aspirational in a way. Like I'm, I'm not even really joking. Like people copy her outfits uh, in the same way they do. So she is, she is very important for him and like softening him up a bit. Um, and making him seem more human and the regime seem more, like, modern. Uh, but the other really important woman in North Korea is his sister, Kim Yo-jong. And she's, she plays a very different role in there and she is uh, there to make Kim Jong-un look good. I mean, she is literally the propaganda chief in North Korea. So she's the one organising everything at the summits, making sure that, um, you know, Kim Jong-un has everything he needs. You know, she's his fix-it person next to him. So they have very distinct roles in the regime. Uh, but, yeah, these two women are very, very important for him. Yeah. 
because actually his sister went to the Olympics, didn't she? Was she, she the Olympics? She was sent. She's sent as an envoy. Yeah, she, she was. I, I saw her at the. Uh, I went to the Olympics too, uh, and she was there. And it was. Uh, I mean, it was a brilliant move because she came in. She seems very kind of demure, which South Koreans loved, but and very kind of humble in a way. But she had this Mona Lisa smile on. She hardly said a word the whole time, and she kind of really. Uh, captivated the South Korean public because she wasn't what they were expecting from this very belligerent regime. Um, and so she was, yeah, the, the goodwill ambassador for a regime that had no goodwill at all. And so that it was a very good move from his, um, his perspective. And I wrote in one of my stories for the Washington Post that she was the Ivanka Trump of North Korea, <laughs> going out and being the kind of presentable face of a immoderate male relative. You should have seen my inbox <laughs> after that. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, you would have had to leave mm. the US. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's interesting because actually I wonder whether that's him suggesting that or the people around him because um, you wrote about the fact that pre before the Trump visit, all of his advisors were re reading the art of the deal and studying Donald Trump and yeah. all this stuff. So is that him deciding that his sister should go or the people around him? What do you think? I think it's probably him. I think, uh, you know, he really trusts his sister. He probably, she's the only one he can really trust because she is a blood relative with the same kind of investment in this system continuing. Um, so he trusts her to go out. And then the South Koreans also knew that she was somebody good to deal, like she was someone with a line to the top. Their, their message would get back to him. So, I mean, it was really notable when they went to Singapore for that first summit with Donald Trump, they flew on separate planes. Um, so uh, I guess they couldn't risk um, the, yeah, the plane going down and both of them disappearing at the same time. And so, I mean, it's just fascinating, this family and the lengths that they go to. So when she went to South Korea for that meeting for the Olympics, she stayed in the presidential suite at this hotel, but she took a stretcher and slept on the stretcher and the room was completely spotless when she left. They, she didn't leave a single hair behind. And Kim Jong-un travels with his own portaloo for the same reason, because they are so paranoid and so secretive, they don't want to leave any DNA behind. Yeah, so the two of them, yeah. You couldn't make it up. Yeah. yeah. That's really quite bizarre, yeah. isn't it? Mm. But that, that shows a willingness or a sort of an acceptance that, as you say, to, to hold on to their power and to, to improve the legitimacy of it, they do have to interact mm. with the outside world and they do have to actually, you know, um, show a public face, mm -hmm. particularly at, on that global stage. Yeah, they do. I mean, and Kim Jong-un really craved that kind of international respect in some ways for those reasons, but also because they, they re rely on so much from the outside world, particularly from China and things that they need to kind of, despite the tension in that relationship, they need to kind of keep things on an even keel. So one thing that actually really intrigues me is the South Korean economy. What, like, at a very basic level, how do they keep the economy going? How are they making the money? We've got these sort of, you know, money men or mm -hmm. who go overseas, but but 
tell us a bit about that. Just how do they keep that economy going? Yeah, so the North Korean economy is, I mean, they do have legitimate exports and they were earning a lot of money from seafood, uh, textiles. They were exporting labour. There's a lot of North Koreans who are working or who were working in factories in China and the U uh, and Russia and also across the Middle East. Uh, and they built the soccer stadium in Qatar for the... Yeah, they were working on that. So they, they send people abroad to earn money for the regime and they're allowed to keep a little bit of it for themselves as well. So that's actually a sought-after job, even though they kind of live in a kind of prison once they're over there, or under strict control. So um, they earn quite a lot of money that way. They uh, do quite a lot of trade with China. They have lots of natural resources, so coal and uh, iron ore and other minerals like that. They're able to export to China and earn money. And there has been quite a lot of illicit activity over the years as well. They've been counterfeiting cigarettes and super dollars, like $100 bills from the United States and making money that way as well. They're not doing so much of that anymore, which makes me think they are finding other more legitimate ways to make money. Um, any other questions? Oh, yep, got a few here. Over there. Yep. Hi. Um, one question I have is, um, how, in your opinion, how do you think the regime can end? Um, like, they've used, obviously, countries are using sanctions, but this seems to only hurt the poorest in society and sort of help... Um, follow the narrative of that the Kims want to put on, which is um, that, you know, the whole world is against them. Yeah. So in your opinion, what do you think? Is the yeah. Way? yeah. Uh, great question. I mean, I did preface this talk by saying I wrote this book because I predicted wrong uh, about Kim Jong-un. So with that grain of salt, um, I think I don't see an imminent... I don't know. I don't know. There are a bunch of things. I think, you know, Kim Jong-un could die uh, or be overthrown in some way, but I don't necessarily think that it would lead to the collapse of the system. I can easily see a situation where the military took over and you had a junta-like situation like Myanmar or somewhere like that, or China next door wanting to keep it stable would install somebody or prop up some part of the regime in some way. So if he were to disappear, I don't think it's a given that the North Korean state would also disappear with him. Uh, and I think, yeah, China has an interest in it surviving in some form, but also in some ways, you know, South Koreans do too. South Korea does too because they would like a slow absorption rather than a catastrophic event. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> there was a question at the back there. Yep. <coughs> Yes. Is there any way to help the average North Korean person? Mm, great question. So there are a bunch of groups that do work uh, inside North Korea. Some, some of them, I mean, there's the big ones like the UN World Food Program and the FAO and things like that who are working inside North Korea. Um, but there are also a lot of uh, organizations that help with like water and other food aid and things, uh, tuberculosis vaccinations, things like that none of them are operating at the moment uh, because of coronavirus. So North Korea, they closed their borders a day before Wuhan and China was locked down, and it's been entirely closed off since. I mean, so if anything is going to destabilise North... Back to your question. If anything was going to destabilise North Korea, it's not sanctions, it's COVID, because they shut the border. 90% of their trade 
and went to China, and that has been cut off for a year. So I think that's the kind of thing that will cause difficulties inside North Korea. But like right now, it's really hard to help the people of North Korea because even the agencies that would be allowed to work uh, inside the country are not able to go in, are not able to send food in. Um, a lot of the time, like the WFP insists on monitoring where the food goes, so it's not all diverted to the military and things, and so none of that is happening right now. But um, I can, I, there's a bunch of good organizations. There's a great organization actually called Liberty in North Korea, which is called Link, uh, and they help people who have already escaped, like maybe in hiding in northern China, they help them get out to South Korea to set up and to start new lives. <coughs> So I think an organisation like that is the best way of helping North Koreans right now. There's a question in the middle here. Yeah. Oh, microphone's coming. <laughs> Thanks. I was going to ask, can you comment on Kim Jong-il's relationship with Russia and Putin? Yeah. Um, it's not, not particularly close, not particularly great, but not terrible either. I mean... The USSR was a great patron to North Korea. Uh, Kim Jong-un's father was born in Russia and had a Russian name and spoke Russian and had a great affinity there. But now it's um, kind of a mutual respect, I guess, that, that Russia doesn't have the same interest in stability in North Korea, so they are more interested in making money if they do business with North Korea rather than just doing it for aid. Uh, Putin did meet Kim Jong-un in Vladivostok during that year of diplomacy, but it was a very short meeting and just kind of like Putin didn't want to be left out of the, uh, of the club of people who were meeting him. So, um, but, but actually Russia does still, well, until COVID, was sending quite a lot of oil to North Korea, so they were helping them in that way. There's a question over at the side. Yeah. I would just say, yeah, Russia and China are the two countries that uh, veto things at the UN Security Council and stop tougher measures happening against North Korea. We have a question here? Yep. Thank you. That was a fascinating talk. Um, so the United Nations sanctions are intended to uh, roll back the nuclear program, which the Security Council has deemed to be a threat to international peace and security. What chances do you think there are for a rollback towards nuclear disarmament, or at least in discussions, perhaps a, a resumption of the six-party talks to what sort of concessions do you think the West might give to Kim Jong-un in, in return for, example, um, closing Yongbyon facility? Yeah. yeah. Oh, good question. Yongbyon. Um, I think there's... I mean, the sanctions were designed to change North Korea's behaviour, right? And they clearly have not worked. North Korea has doubled down, not, not given up its nuclear programme. So I can't see the sanctions themselves being rolled back, even though they are very severe right now and, uh, you know, approaching trade embargo level. But the US knows that if they were to, you know, that those sanctions were applied in 2016 at a very unique time when China was annoyed enough with North Korea and all the missile launches to actually impose these very strict sanctions. And the US knows that that situation is very unlikely to occur again. So if they took the sanctions away, they'd never be able to get them back. So I don't think that's going to happen. But they could return to some kind of diplomacy. I don't know if it would be six-party talks, but... What I do know is North Korea is never going to give up their nuclear weapons program. You know, Kim Jong-un has invested so much money and so much of his 
um, kind of leadership, his legitimacy in that system, and he thinks he needs them. He saw um, what happened. You know, Muammar Gaddafi was pulled out of a ditch in Libya like at the same time that Kim Jong-il was dying and Kim Jong-un was taking over. He saw what happens when you give up your nuclear program. So I just think there's no way he is ever going to willingly give that up. And he may give up some parts of it, a little bit of fissile material or a few missiles or something, but not the capability, no, yeah, never. Uh, and so in the past, the things that they've traded it for are energy aid and food aid and things like that. But, you know, this is why I was actually a bit optimistic about the talks with Trump, because the old way of doing things, this diplomacy, you know, you give us some weapons, we give you some rice, hadn't worked. It had always broken down. So I thought, you know, maybe these two very different characters can actually make a breakthrough uh, and or just make some progress on this intractable, intractable problem. Got time for like one or two last questions. Yep, one here. When we see um, TV of, of their military parades and so on, and they mm. seem to have all these missiles and, and the army and so on, but they're also, you've also said about you know, how the economy is struggling and so on. Mm. Do you think that their army really would be a threat if it was attacked by, for argument's sake, the United States? Uh, they're no match for the United States or even South Korea. So I think they would never attack first. I think their weapons are really meant as a deterrent or as a defensive mechanism. But I think um, they, I mean, they have developed a really credible nuclear uh, program for that reason. So I think, you know, when you see at those parades the great big missiles that are paraded through, even if they're not real, even if they're just mock-ups of them, I would still take that very seriously because that's North Korea signalling their intention or their ambition. And in the past, when they've shown us things, um, there was like one time they unveiled this bomb that was called the disco ball. And, you know, it looked like a disco ball with all these wires coming out of it. Like, it looked like what you would make for a school project out of paper mache. But then, uh, you know, a little while later, they tested something. They said this was a hydrogen bomb, and then boom, they blew up something that looked like a hydrogen bomb. Um, so I think, yeah, we should definitely take, take them seriously when they say that they are trying to develop these things. Yeah. Any last questions? Yep, last question here. Thank you. Did you ever get any information about the boy Otto, whatever, the American who was sent home unconscious? Yeah, I had a lot of uh, information about him and that he, the, I mean, the piece we don't know and I don't think we'll ever know is what actually happened to him in North Korea. So... You know, he was sentenced to 15 years hard labour after pulling down this propaganda poster from the walls, um, was obviously very distraught in the last time he appeared in this kind of court setting. Um, the North Koreans said that he had a bad reaction to pork and spinach that they sent him, fed him, and they gave him some medicine, and that, that he had the, you know, reaction to that as well. I don't believe that. Um, so... I don't know what happened to him, whether he was so distraught that he tried to do something about that or whether they beat him up. I, you know, I don't think they would willingly put him in... Like, he should never have been in that situation. You know, he should have just been sent home. But I don't think they would have willingly tried to hurt him to such a level because 
Americans are valuable to them as bargaining chips. You know, they want to use this to get negotiations going with the United States. So I think something untoward happened to Otto um, and that then they tried to cover it up. So when the uh, North Korean envoy uh, in charge of American relations went, she went to Oslo and met the American diplomats a year after Otto had been sentenced. And they did a deal to allow consular access to him. And when it was, she went back to North Korea, even she didn't know what had happened to him. The security services still had to him, and then they had to fess up that he was uh, brain dead and had been for more than a year. So I think this was a real, you know, a debacle, uh, and that they tried to cover their butts there. So, yeah, very tragic. I think we'll never know unless somebody who was involved in that situation, who worked in the hospital or something, uh, defects and tells us. Um, thanks, Anna. On behalf of everyone here, I just want to thank you um, for this extraordinary book, for your bravery and courage as a journalist to tell a story, and for your meticulous investigating travelling around the world. Um, it's a fabulous read, and if anyone you know wants to um, have even more knowledge about this, then um, Anna's going to be here. Um, you can buy her book here, and she's going to sign them mm -hmm. afterwards. But um, it really touched me at the beginning that you dedicated your book to um, North Koreans themselves. And I found that really profoundly touching, actually. Yeah. Thank you, because I was really conscious that even though it's Kim Jong-un on the cover, you know, I don't care about him. It's the people under him. So Exactly. Can I just say one more thing? Yeah. So, I mean, last year I, I decided to come home to New Zealand after 20 years away and doing all this stuff, and it was because it, it really um, felt for me like it was time to be home, and after being so far away, I just wanted to be close again. Um, and so I joined staff, and uh, I'm working at the Dominion Post in Wellington, and I did that partly because I really believe and the importance and the power of journalism and good journalism and that we in New Zealand really need good journalism. Uh, we've seen what happens in the United States when journalism becomes polarised and facts are called into question and things. So um, I hope that all of you are subscribers of the press. Uh, if you're not, please subscribe. Uh, and I think some Kamala Heyman is here and we'll be happy to help sign you up. But, uh, <laughs> but please, yeah, well, please, uh, I think New Zealand really needs strong, independent, powerful media. And so please support us and help us. That's it. <laughs>